0: You know, first they laugh at you, then they criticize you, and then they celebrate you. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get through those first two stages. So there's, there's belief in yourself, belief in your concept, and the tenacity to push through when everybody else is turning out the lights.
1: everyone. Welcome to the Founder Hour. We're sitting here with Eric Oberholzer. Uh, He's the co-founder and CEO of Tender Greens. Uh, Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, I guess uh, where we really kind of want to start off the story, um, kind of starting from, you know, sort of the beginning, you know, when you're in college, uh, when, when did you kind of have that epiphany or moment where you wanted to go into culinary arts?
0: Uh, It was the end of the 80s. I was about ready to graduate from college, and I'm walking down 18th Street uh, through Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. And over the years, I had just uh, fallen in love with hospitality. Uh, First hospitality at the Four Seasons Hotel in Philadelphia, then wine. Uh, And, you know, that was the beginning of the Wine Spectator. And then the, the great markets of Philadelphia, the Reading Terminal Market, and the Ninth Street Market, the Italian Market. Uh, I would I would just uh, lose myself uh, every week at those markets and develop the relationships with the vendors and the products they sold. And and I you know when I graduated, uh, the '80s was coming to an end. Uh, so was the economy; it was falling apart. We were going off to the first Gulf War. And the world was changing dram- dramatically. And uh, I just wanted to pursue something that I was passionate about. It was, at the time, very unconventional to, to go into to food uh, because most of the professionals were coming out of Europe. And, um, yeah, I, I thought I could travel the world by using the language of food to navigate. And it's, it's done well for me.
2: So, Eric, you know, you have this passion for hospitality, for food, but at this point, do you think that this is something that's going to be making you money?
0: Uh, at the time, I didn't know. You know, I, what I knew was that there were a number of different things that I could do. At the very least, I would learn how to cook uh, by going to culinary school. And, you know, I, I didn't know what I was getting into. I, I thought it was going to be more of a creative experience, more like going to art school. Uh, it wasn't. It was very much a trade experience. It was very blue-collar. Uh, so that was a bit of a shock. Uh, but I wasn't driven so much by money at that moment, although I was coming out of the 80s when money mattered more than anything to anybody. Yeah, right. um, but I, I thought I could just uh, you know, lean into my passion, and whether I went into journalism or... Or something else. I, you know, I figured this was the first step to, to exploring it. So I wasn't sure. It was, it was, I was unclear. And then once I got to culinary school and started working in professional kitchens, um, nice. I just fell in love with the energy of 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 the kitchens. Uh, it was very much like the energy that one gets on the soccer field. I was a soccer player, and you're just in the moment. There's no time to think. You have to pivot you know real time you have to think on your feet literally and there's something uh, brutal about it but also really exhilarating and i i tapped into that exhilaration
1: so at this time did you have it in your mind that you wanted to start your own business and that kind of entrepreneurial drive or was was it more like you knew you had to you know get your i guess certification degree and then go in, you know, into a large hospitality group or restaurant and become an executive chef there? What was kind of the goal for you?
0: Yeah, well, like I said, I wasn't sure. Um, But I I knew I had to learn uh, first through culinary school. And then very quickly, I realized that the true learning was uh, in the in the kitchens in the, uh, you know, in, in the best kitchens at that time in New England. And then uh, very, very, very quickly, I turned my sights to Northern California. Um, you know, the, what was happening in Berkeley and San Francisco and Knapp and Sonoma uh, was exactly where I wanted to be. So as soon as I came out of culinary school, I, I headed to Berkeley um, and spent 10 years cooking through the best kitchens of, of the San Francisco Bay Area, and with each... Experience. I got deeper and deeper and deeper into the passion of food and my, uh, my point of view uh, was shaped. And it really became, for those years, just um, uh, defining my voice and, and perfecting my craft, always with a thought that eventually I, I wanted, like everybody, uh, to open their own restaurant. And the game at that time was, you know, you, you, you get to the point of chef, and then, if you do well uh eventually there you know people get you know take notice, and it's usually the uh, the regular guest who uh, who has a lot of money and 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 backs the chef that that's that was sort of the progression, so I had to go through those years of one achieving the executive mm-hmm. chef post and then uh, gaining the attention of someone who might back me
2: so Eric. You get to that point, you moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, you're cooking for 10 years, and now you're talking about you know having the power of somebody backing you up. Was there a moment like that where you either knew or somebody approached you and said, hey, it's time, it's time for you to move on from what you're doing and do your own thing?
0: Yeah, uh, I would say six months into... Taking over Shutters on the Beach, I moved from San Francisco to Santa Monica to run Shutters on the Beach, and and very quickly I realized that this was going to be my last stop. Um, It you know it's a it's an amazing property, uh, but the the room for for creative expression um, and my just internal need to be uh, you know fully in charge of the creative. Expression, uh, uh, you know, across the entire uh, system uh, wasn't going to happen unless I I was doing my own thing. So I started exploring, you know, business opportunities. What 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 does LA need, right? And I started look at, looking at the market. And at first, we 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 landed on uh, this concept called fishbone, uh, and it was really meant to be sort of an East Coast. Uh, Fish House, I, I would say, uh, Connie and Ted's is probably mm-hmm. closest to what we imagined, mm-hmm. um, and Connie, Connie and Ted's is, um, is, a, is is the reason that we didn't end up uh, doing it because, it, you know, uh, our idea, like what uh, uh, what's been done at Connie and Ted's, ended up being a very very expensive project. Um, so we wanted to do something simpler and landed on Tender Greens, and Tender Greens was a reaction to um, the, the the L.A. food scene at the time, which was uh, very, very expensive restaurants with huge build-outs, okay food, uh, really centered on A-list celebrities uh, or people on, uh, with expense accounts or what have you, and... Um, and then the fast food culture of Southern California, neither of which I participated in. I cooked in, in the high end, so I, I catered to those mm-hmm. folks. But um, on my days off, I wasn't really participating. So I wanted to, in a sense, democratize the slow food movement of, uh, of Northern California. Everything that I loved about Northern California and, and bring it to the people.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because in any sort of industry when uh, an entrepreneur or would-be entrepreneur is looking for maybe a gap in the market or a problem to solve, uh, it's really easy to look at, you know, what is there and what's missing um, from a higher level standpoint of like what the, I guess, the menu looks like as opposed to everything around it, like the ambiance, the service, the price point, things like that. So... I guess what advice would you give to, like, an entrepreneur in that position when they're, um, I guess, looking at a, at an industry? Like, how did you kind of go about that discovery?
0: Well, well I think you said it. Um, you know, there's a problem to solve, mm-hmm. and which becomes your why. So why does the world need your product or service? And, you know, I, I think what we arrived at with Fishbone was, LA didn't really need another fish place. There were there were a lot of good fish places. Maybe not quite East Coast style, um, but there were there were you know great sushi restaurants here, great seafood houses. You know there as we really looked at it, it LA wasn't in, in desperate need of another fish restaurant, um, and and ultimately Santa Monica Seafood filled one side of it because we were thinking about a sort of a market component to it and Connie and Ted's did the other. And there aren't a lot of Connie and Ted's or Santa Monica seafoods in Los Angeles. So it was a very narrow market, right? right? Um, Tender greens. uh, There was nothing, there's no place to get good food with good ingredients at a price point that most of us can afford um, in a, in a, a, at a speed that we can all fit into our busy schedules. And that was, let's say, uh, plant forward, um, not, not vegetarian, not vegan, but plant forward, but still craveable, still indulgent, you know, still the kind of food that many of us, certainly me and my partners, uh, cooked for our friends and family at home and, and if you think about where we are today, relative to where we were when you know we had the idea 15 years ago, uh, the foodscape is a lot different, and and I think we played a big role in that. Uh, so you have Santa Monica Seafood and and Connie and Ted's on one side, uh, the direction we didn't go. They do a great job, um, and then you have. Where there was nothing like tender greens, it, it's a whole category, right? Of, mm-hmm. You know, and I say, I would say a somewhat disruptive category if I were to borrow that term mm-hmm. out of Silicon Valley. But yep. um, you know, we 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 along with some others early on um, sort of defined a new way of eating and 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 uh, looking at restaurants.
2: So, Eric, uh, firstly, I want to disagree with you that I do not believe that statement about we don't need more fish restaurants. I do think that we do, and I think fishbone would have been a great concept because I've been to Boston and Providence, Rhode Island and all over Rhode Island, and it, the seafood that you get there, first of all, is completely different than yeah. here. I mean, it's, you're, it's like so fresh. It's, yeah. it's right from there, uh, but maybe one day down the line, we'll see that from Eric. Um, but secondly, I know that, you know, you talked and you touched upon it briefly about like why my product, why my service now what else kind of goes into that? I know I have I've you know I've spoken to you about this before, and you kind of talked about the different whys. I think it was three different whys that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, why don't you kind of walk us through that? Because I think that that's something that a lot of folks that are now in the con- concept stage of their business or just even trying to start up is something that they're missing, or it's something that they're not thinking about until after the fact. Yeah. You know, whereas you know I think that you can kind of tell us it's something that you should be thinking about as you're developing your company.
0: Yeah. The, so here it is uh so the first why is uh why does the world need this product and service why is it relevant why does anybody care right and that forces one to to say is this all about me and my passion and my expression or is there a need is there a demand uh the second why is you know why now why is the timing right where are the conditions perfect for this idea am i too early am i too late uh why why is the timing right and you have to you have to hit it you have to hit it right there are a lot of great ideas that are sort of on the bleeding edge and then fail and 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 somebody comes by two years later and and kills it right and somebody's sitting there saying well i had this idea two years ago yeah too early right or you're too late and you're you're at the party too late um And then, you know, I think the third question is, and and probably the most important, is why me? Why me? Why am I the one to execute this, to bring it to market? Because it's a lot more than just ideas, and it's a lot more than, you know, appropriate timing. Now you have to execute. And we've heard this over and over in a million different ways, that, you know, the world doesn't need any more good ideas. It needs people to execute on you know one and it's all about the execution and that's where you know for us at least it was it was all about you know the years of um training of the years of learning and and in terms of timing you know being at that stage of life where we had learned enough but we were young enough to fail um but also young enough to to muscle through what is a journey. Nothing happens overnight. So I I think it's really, really important to check in with yourself and say, can I do it? Um, Can I do it alone? I don't recommend it. I recommend partnership. I I think in the same way that you take risks when you're out scuba diving or surfing or, or mountain climbing, whatever you do in life, it's better to have at least one partner. I had two, and that served us really well because then you never have tension uh, or the tension is always broken by the, the third. Um, so you always sort of work it out. It's almost like having, uh, you know, being in a marriage with a, you know, with a therapist on, on retainer. You know, there, there's always a referee. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, I, I really believe it's those three wives. And if you can't get through that, if you can't answer that, then you're going to have a weak business plan and a, and a difficult journey. Mm-hmm.
2: Eric, what makes it so hard to execute these ideas? You know, I hear people giving me these ideas all the time, you know, both of us. I'm sure you hear all these ideas all the time as well. And they're good ideas, you know. You're thinking, okay, I could see that working out. But what makes it so difficult for, you know, people to either execute? Is it them? They don't have the requisite, you know, talent, experience, skill? Or is it just that difficult?
0: It's it's all... Difficult uh, um, You know no, none of this is easy and that's why I think the entrepreneur is so celebrated today because there's a difference between going into business and Creating So, you know an entrepreneur in my view is somebody who creates something somebody somebody who really brings something new to the marketplace solves for something a need a problem whatever versus going out and replicating somebody else's idea, maybe executing it better or worse. Um, the, the other part, you know, is capital. Capital, you know, if, if you don't have the money, whether you have your own money or you have a network where you can access capital, you don't, you don't move. You know, without money, you don't move the needle. Yeah, so for us, it took two and a half years to raise the, the capital uh, to bring tender greens to the market, and that's a long time for anybody to believe in their idea, believe in themselves, um, get rejected because you know it's. You've heard this probably a million times, but you know first they you know first they laugh at you, then they criticize you, and then they celebrate you. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get through those first two stages. So there's there's belief in yourself, belief in your concept. And the tenacity to push through when everybody else is turning out the lights, and and also there is a, there's potentially a, a wealth at the end of the rainbow, but that journey is, is very difficult. And if if you're looking to to turn you know a profit quickly, a personal profit, um, you're probably in the wrong wrong. Certainly not in the restaurant business. It, it doesn't happen mm-hmm. overnight.
1: Yeah, and uh, so tell us a little bit about that couple years that you were, you know, seeking investment, because when you kind of look at it, the timing of it, you are, you know, is this the right time to start this? Two years, a lot can happen. A lot can happen to you, a lot can happen to your business, a lot can happen to the market. What was kind of your north star in those two years? Like, why did you really still believe that Tenor Greens was going to become successful, even though you hadn't raised any money for two years? And I'm assuming you were, you were not, you know, making money elsewhere. You were fully focused on this. So, how did you?
0: Yeah. So we, uh, so Matt and I stayed gainfully employed at Shutter's on the Beach. So six months in into my tenure at Shutter's, I knew that I wanted to do something else. I ended up staying there. Almost four years. So yeah, maybe it was almost three years uh, between concept and and opening. Um, And we did not give our notice at shutters until we had a signed lease and construction was ready. So we at least had a job, which is good for the business. So all the capital raised to, to start the business went into building the restaurant, not in, you know, our paychecks. Uh, David had left uh, Shutter's much earlier, went to the Peninsula Hotel as a, a cabana server, uh, thinking that was going to be a summer job while he helped to raise money. That ended up being a two and a half year, you know, stint at the at the, at the Peninsula, which challenged David in a big way because he went from the director of food and beverage at Shutter's on the Beach to, you know, first cabana server than you know the restaurant server um and as much as we've heard servers make a lot of money it's not enough to pay the mortgage always so there were some lonely moments at dark bars uh where we had our finger on the on the you know press stop button we were ready to pull the plug um and, and, and that's where partnership matters because, had it been one of us solo, probably would have quit, probably would have said, you know what, forget it. You know, I, I, can't, I can't do this. I, it's not going to happen. Uh, but when you have each other, you, you muscle through it, you, you believe in it. And I think the important thing for me, having now started a number of other things, is, you know, there's the, the moment where you socialize an idea just around friends and family just to get feedback and refine your 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 idea and then there's that moment when you go public yeah. there is a moment when you tell the world whatever that world is to you that doesn't mean going on cnn or bloomberg that might be sending
1: a tweet out or
0: might be a tweet might be you know cocktail party maybe you throw a party and you say i'm we're we're going to do this yeah. here's what we're going to do and everybody cheers and says good luck And now it's public. And what that does is it creates pressure because now you don't want to embarrass yourself. You don't want to let people down. You don't want to let yourself down. And it becomes more about reputation. And it's a great motivator to just keep you going. It also creates energy around the idea, which can create, you know, it'd be a vehicle for fundraising or or other people helping you out.
1: Yeah, kind of holding your own feet to the fire in a way yeah um, so in in those in those couple of years what was the main thing that was making it difficult to like find investors raise money was it a market condition was it the idea wasn't as refined as you wanted it to, to, to be or was it because you guys were kind of working on it part-time while working you know at you know your respective places what was kind of the situation Yeah. Like? if
0: I were to bullet point it um, restaurants are terrible investments right so most restaurant investors are investing at least at that stage startup stage um in you the entrepreneur and generally they don't expect their money back you know they they might just feel like you know it's ten thousand dollars here and it'll be fun to watch you go you know and if i lose it so what um so you don't therefore you don't get Uh, sophisticated investors at that level. You get friends, family, and colleagues who are cheering you on. Um, Secondly, we were competing with a bloated real estate environment. So there were, I had prep cooks who were flipping houses. Uh, People were making money in real estate, dumb money. So if you can make, you know, funny money in real estate or tech, um, why are you going to waste your time and energy and resources on a restaurant? Uh, It was a concept that uh, we couldn't point to a competitor. So it was a novel idea back then. So we couldn't say, well, we want to be like whatever, you know, Um, and and we're just going to, you know, here's how we're going to differentiate ourselves. Uh, So we had people saying, well, nobody's ever made money in the salad business. You guys are out of fine dining. What do you know about quick serve? how, you know, what are your economics going to be? Chipotle's doing at the time, I think $850,000 in in AUVs, and they were best in class. So our pro forma was about 1.3. Now we've, we blew that away, but at the time, you know, the volumes didn't make sense. Uh, There were a lot of, there are a lot of reasons why, people thought this would fail. you know the more sophisticated money. Uh, so it, 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 it made it really difficult. You'd never scaled anything. You've never had a business before. You've only run other people's business and and. and, and so when you know it's funny uh, somebody once told me, if, if you want someone to give you money, ask them ask them for advice. If you want advice from somebody, ask them for money. So we got we got a lot of advice and a lot of it, it was good. Some of it uh, is fun to reflect back on, but at the end of the day, um, it's like I said they, they laugh at you, and then they criticize you, and then eventually they come back and say how do we how can we invest? And by that time, it's too late for them.
2: So, Eric, you started Tender Greens 15 years ago at this point, 15, 16 years at this point. So, you know, that's been a great run, but obviously there were some tough years towards the middle of that, you and know. That was kind of right before the, the crash, right? A yeah. A few years before. Was that 2008, 2008? 2009?
0: Yeah, so we opened in 2006. Okay. Um, and, you know, that was the peak of the market. Everything was going crazy. And then we, uh, we opened our second restaurant in in uh, San Diego I think it was 2007 which you know things were starting to sputter and by 2008 and 9 when we opened like West Hollywood and Hollywood the lights had gone dark uh, everywhere you know I remember it was um, West Hollywood for a long time we were the only ones in that mixed brand new mixed use building it was designed as condos went as apartments and we were the only Tenant uh, Sunset and Vine, the entire retail portion was had been leased out, and then all of those leases fell out, and we slid in. Uh, Starbucks, which is there today, was an original tenant, and they they, they were pulling back because uh, they were in trouble at the time. So things were really awful back then. You know, the Wells Fargo went out on one corner and. Uh, The bookstore, Borders Books, went Mm -hmm. bankrupt and out uh, on the other, and suddenly Hollywood went dark. All of the construction that now you see in Hollywood, all those cranes, uh, were were queued up for like 07, 08, and and all those projects were defunded and went dark. So we uh, we spent the bulk of the crisis um, doing very well uh, because... Businesses were going under, and a lot of people were trading down from the high end into into, into tender grains and we had no competition. There was nobody else. You know, the Mendocino Farms had their little place down in in, in downtown LA. Lemonade might have had one or two. You know, there were there were blips on the screen, but none of us were really competing. So those were those were incredible years for us. We 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 had great. Real estate grabs at the time. It was both scary uh, because nobody knew what was going to happen, and there was a lot of depression. Yeah. I, I remember the, you know, the the writers' strike. You know, in in the middle of the you know the, the worst year for Hollywood, the writers went out on strike, which impacted us mm-hmm. because we're by the studios. Yeah. So there were so many things that were, were you know we were we were dealing with, but the the competitive landscape was was favorable to us
2: so you make it through the recession you are now at how many restaurants around 2009
0: 2010 uh by that time probably like eight or nine i would say
2: okay so eight or nine restaurants in the last you know in the first about five years and now you guys are what near 25
0: uh we just opened our 25th in century city
2: congratulations on that so let's talk about you know, scaling the company at this point, you know, you were told in the beginning that, you know, you don't have this experience, you know, you're just cooking elsewhere, growing other people's business. But, you know, what, I mean, how did you learn? Or was it just kind of just, you know, we have these partners, we have a team of people now, and this looks like our next step. Like this is what we got to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, what does that conversation look like for you?
0: So I think what we probably did right in in retrospect was, You know, as we were waiting uh, for the restaurant to be built, uh, we had a lot of time and we read. We became students of other entrepreneurs, uh, particularly in the food space, but more broadly. Um, And whether it was uh, the Starbucks story or the In-N-Out story or Krispy Kreme or, um, you know, uh, Cliff Bar, uh, Southwest, um, we became students both of brands and Uh, and and successful stories also from not just what we see, you know, these brands as leaders and and success stories, but where they could have gone with, you know, the mistakes they made along the way. And then there was also this book um, called the E-Myth, which is probably the best business book I've ever read. It's a, it's a two hour read and it really talks about how uh, the entrepreneur needs to start with a plan to, work themselves out of the, the weeds of the business and so that they can run the business. And, and the three of us really stuck to that plan, that in the beginning we did everything. We dug the ditches for the plumbing. We were the night cleaners. We were the prep cooks. We were the dish. We, we, we were everything. But we always had a plan to, to bring in people as needed um, and, and back ourselves out. And that journey never stops right it it's even to this day um you know we we surround ourselves with professionals whether it's a professional night cleaner or or dishwasher or it's you know most recently bringing in danielle bruno from dry bar as as president Um, we'll talk about that shortly it was on my radar yeah um but you know to answer your question we we were, we were, you know, I'm, I, I sit here with a lot of gratitude towards those people who offered, you know, an hour or two to mentor us. Um, you know, Rick Rosenfeld over at CPK, Rick Federico at, at uh, uh, P.F. Chang's. And one of our first, you know, big investors was a guy by the name of Frank Viscara, he was a number two at McDonald's through the '90s turnaround for them, and brought this big company, very systems-minded um, DNA uh, to us. And he became one of our advisors, and is to this day. And what was amazing in the beginning, you know, I, I have to say, I looked at him and I'm like, yeah, 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 "Stay away!" And he looked at me like I'm this crazy artist and over the years we learned from one another and we developed this mutual respect so he helped us systematize everything that we did so we were not a salt and pepper to taste operation anymore and also professionalize the home office the corporate office so that you know one by one whether it was uh, in hr or finance or marketing or whatever we brought in professionals versus us doing the best that we could so we we got out of you know what started as mom and pop into startup into the sort of the enthusiasm of entrepreneurs into a more professional operation
1: yeah which is which is something that is i mean extremely difficult to do so many startups you see almost fail at that point of scalability because either they hire too quickly or they just can't hire the right people for the right jobs like what is the reason behind or what did you do to kind of make sure that you're always hiring the right people for the right jobs
0: well so culture is really important right so do they fit danny meyer says you know can you spend six hours on the bus with this person mm-hmm. and if you can't then they're probably not a good cultural fit uh, beyond that then it's skill set are they really smart are they the best at what they do and and that's a harder thing to answer when you don't know, you've never worked with anybody at that level. Um, so, you know, with uh, with human resources, we brought in uh, Cynthia Yumez, who Matt and I had worked with at Shutters of the Beach, so we already knew her, we had a relationship, we knew she came, came out of a really buttoned-up uh, organization, and we trusted her, and she built out our human resources uh, sources department. Nino you know, O'Connor, who is now our CFO, um, was assigned to our account with Vine Solution. Vine Solution is a, is a group who sort of acts as the outsourced um, CFO uh, to smaller companies. I had worked with Ed Levine uh, as the chef of Left Bank years before, so I trusted him. And when Lena felt we were ready. She said, it's time for you to bring finance in-house, and I would love to be that person. So we brought her in. So she already was essentially yeah. kind of an employee. Same thing with Christina Wong. She, she had worked uh, for two PR agencies. She uh, has been with a brand essentially nine years, and when, it was, when we were growing out of her, uh, she encouraged us to bring PR marketing in-house, and she said, I want to do it. So oftentimes it was still in network. Uh, all of the chefs that we've hired were from my network, both in L.A. and San Francisco. So these are people who are not hired guns. They're committed family members, uh, which adds another layer of um, commitment, not just them to to us, but uh, us to them.
2: Eric, we talked a lot about, you know, how Tender Greens started and, you know, that journey. Why don't we touch upon a little bit so that our, you know, listeners hear what makes Tender Greens unique? You know, the menu I know is, you know, definitely more healthy, more, you know, like you said, plant forward, but it still has that protein. Um... And I also I've been to a few of the Tender Greens locations myself, and it's a beautifully designed. They're all beautifully designed restaurants. But what makes it different than something else? You know, what makes the experience uh, unique for those that are you know going into Tender Greens to have lunch or dinner or whatever other reason they're there for?
0: I think the big differentiator, uh, the ownable moment for us, is uh, every one of the restaurants has a fine dining trained chef all 25 restaurants have chefs who whose culinary resume matches mine or or matt's Uh, there is no other brand uh, in our category who can say that you know other brands have one chef who is at you know some test kitchen and and then they have people running those restaurants uh, so that that's one. Uh, then how that translates into the food is, you know, the core menu is the kind of food that that I like to eat on a daily basis. You know, it's, it's what would
2: that be? You
0: know, it's it's uh, you know, it's called it California comfort. It's, uh, you know, a, a, a perfectly roasted or grilled chicken with creamy mashed potatoes and a nice salad or a steak cooked mid rare. Uh, A fish with olive oil. I mean, getting back to the fish Mm -hmm. bone, a a really good fish with olive oil, lemon, and some parsley. Simple. Mm -hmm. It's really good ingredients um, prepared simply. Our our sort of mantra is buy the the really good stuff and don't screw it up.
2: So, Eric, I know that you're big on supply chain and keeping that integrity. Yeah. You know, why don't we kind of talk about that? I know it's something that a lot of people might not be familiar with and, you know, a lot of people think, you know, starting a restaurant, you know, it's simple. You just have a menu concept, and boom, you hire a chef, you cook, and you get it done. But it's really not that easy, and I, I also think that's why the margins are not that great and probably not a great investment. But talk to us a little bit about your kind of, you know, take on the supply chain and how you maintain that integrity with all now 25 locations of Tender Greens.
0: Well, if, uh, if you don't have good ingredients, then you don't have good food. It's that simple. Um, if you don't have great humans, then you don't have good customer service. Uh, it's that simple. So from the very beginning, uh, we, we were tied uh, very closely to our farmers. Uh, when Tender Greens was just a, a, a menu and a two-page overview, Matt and I went up to Oxnard to visit with Jeff and Ann Stein of Scarborough Farms, who we had a long-standing relationship with already, and said, "Look, we've written a menu that's based on a lot of what you grow. Uh, we'd love to partner with you." And they were uh, sort of blown away because nobody had ever approached them. They had been growing for the top tables in California and New York for, you know, for 20 years already, and nobody had really bothered to partner with them. Uh, so they uh, they invested some money, uh, and we had a deal with them. Uh, the first four restaurants, each opening, uh, the first twenty-five thousand dollars worth of uh, invoices uh, were not paid in cash; they were paid in equity. Uh, and to this day, Scarborough Farms is a is, is an investor, is an equity holder, equity partner in Tender Greens. And and through the years, we've used that model. Uh, with a lot of other farmers, now in reverse. So oftentimes what we'll do is uh, front uh, operating capital to smaller farmers who we believe in and we want them to scale up with us so that they can raise their animals or, or get the seeds in the ground or do whatever they need, maybe buy a combine. And then they pay us back in ingredients over time. And what that creates is a bond that goes beyond the chef-farmer relationship, and it really becomes more, again, that sort of extended family mm-hmm. membership. And when, when our farmers maybe are up against something, it might be weather, it might be labor, it might be something, mm-hmm. uh, you know, oil prices, um, we help them through that. Uh, but also they protect us. So we don't have disruption where others might get some disruption in their supply chain, uh, and that's in price, quality, or, uh, or quantity. Yeah. And as we enter New York and Boston and other markets, um, you know, we, have, we have partners there, uh, and we've leveraged our relationship now with Danny Meyer and his group uh, uh, so that we can shore up uh, really important relationships there.
1: Yeah. So kind of kind of the shift towards sort of the the branding aspect, because I know you said that, you know, you've been a student of branding and kind of trying to understand how brands become what they become. Obviously, Tender Greens has an amazing brand. Most recently, you almost went through a rebrand. You know, yeah. the, the the logo changed. The name's still the same, but the logo changed and kind of the colors. And kind of explain what that was. You know, due to was it just a you know project or was it was there a specific reason?
0: No, it would have been a very expensive passion project. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, look, when we when we started, there was nothing that s- sounded like Tender Greens, looked like Tender Greens, tasted like Tender Greens. As we Sat in front of you know the you know the big screen on the wall and looked at all the brands in the market, uh, not just here in, in California but across the country who compete uh, maybe in messaging or or name uh, or or even category. We um, we realized we had to find a way to differentiate ourselves. So we uh, we tasked uh, Paula polisher of Pentagram, who had worked with Danny before uh, on the Shake Shack logo, and we brought her out to California and said, "Start poking holes in 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 in, in the brand, and you know we'll we'll uh, we'll give you a lot of room to be creative." And that's what she wanted. She didn't want to come on and, and and you know make a tweak. She wanted to really create something that was forward thinking and you know what she really landed on was we need to capture the dynamic nature of tender greens you have these chefs who are creating specials every day independent of of the brand or or any other uh restaurant in the group and and that's where sort of the magic is so we need to find a way to capture that um that that begins to pull attention away from the name Tender Greens and more towards this this mark, and she imagines something digital. Um, we certainly leverage that digital format online in the phones. We're we're not doing it in the restaurant as she had originally contemplated, because that, that brings up a whole you know page of of challenges, but. We went with the, uh, the G that uh, is made up of a, of a pot on, on the top with the handle and a plate on the bottom. And uh, empty, it really doesn't say much, right? But activated um, through the vision and the expression and the creativity of a chef, um, then, it, then it says something. And it's not saying something that's static uh, but it is saying something that's incredibly dynamic that might be reflective of the weather, might be reflective of uh, the time of year, the chef's point of view, maybe even the politics of the time, whatever. But we can use that as a, a window into into the brand and what's happening real time, not not for you know a, a season, but real time. And and then we went with red. Mm-hmm. Because everybody else is green and brown and earth tones and blah, blah, blah. Uh, So we wanted to go the opposite direction and say, you know what, we're going to go red. We're going to be bold and we're going to lean into the passion of the chef and the uh, the passion that got me into this business and and move with that. And uh, and, and we went with sort of a sleeker design uh, that's more appropriate for the digital age that we're in. Um, you know, truthfully, Tender Greens was really backwards-looking. Uh, you know, we looked at the time at you know the Trader Joes and the Ben and Jerry's and you know the the folksier, mm-hmm. crunchier um, identities of the past, and that's not where we are anymore. So we wanted to look, look uh, more into the future, the brand of the future. Um and that's that's where we sort of landed with this new identity. And it's been shocking to some. You know, some people are like, What have you yeah, done? I was driving
1: and I was like, Wait, is that tender greens? Like yeah. the logo just changed.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And and people say your tender greens where's the green. Well yeah. exactly. That's, mm-hmm. that's the point. That's the point. And it looks so modern, it's not organic and handmade. Well yeah. Times have changed. Yeah.
2: Well, I think that's a perfect kind of segue into, you know, you talking about, you know, the growth of the brand now, you know, it's, you know, I think growth might even be the wrong word, but just kind of like the elevation of the brand. Um, and I think you brought up Danielle Bruno earlier, yeah. who's now the president of Tendergreens, right. is that that's correct? Right. And so for those that don't know, Danielle, Danielle came from, um, Dry she was the president of Dry Bar, I believe, she worked for Pete's Coffee, yeah. Apple, she launched Apple stores, yep. so I mean, clearly, you know, she's no big deal. You know, uh, if I had to be a little sarcastic there. Uh, so, what does Danielle add to Tender Greens and the elevation of this brand and company?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question, and 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 I would say to any entrepreneur or professional executive, uh, this is really important. Um, what I've learned as I've gone through this identity evolution you know from chef to restaurant owner to entrepreneur uh, to founder to now CEO. Um, there are different skill sets there are diff- different expectations um, and there are there are phases that either you need to embrace or, or not. And I think this is a really important stage. And I'm just speaking about myself, uh, but for any, anybody who might be in my position out there, um, that it requires a lot of self-awareness. Um, and you need that self-awareness throughout your career, right? What am I good at and lean into it? And what, do I, what am I not good at and how do I... You know, strengthen those weaknesses through partnership. And this would be an example. Um, i I perform best. I'm most passionate about solving big problems. So when I look at um, food justice, or I look at uh, access to better food or food transparency, or uh food integrity, uh these are things that I get really excited about and I can lead with. Um when we start talking about uh year over year growth, comps, four wall, EBITDA and all that stuff, uh real estate selection outside of our home environment, um those are uh that's a different skill set. And you can You can learn it, as I have, but there may not be passion for it. It doesn't get me out of bed getting excited about comps. Um, Danielle is not an entrepreneur. She's an executive. And she is is awesome at the game of business. She also has a track record of scaling brands from our phase, where we are now, to where we want to go. And she's... Scaled, best-in-class brands. I, you know, I would argue that um, Dry Bar was incredibly innovative, and, and they've maintained their their market mm-hmm. and their lead. Uh, Pete's was the first ahead of Starbucks, um, and they've managed to compete with Starbucks weirdly, mm-hmm. um, even though Starbucks, you know, she points out, has I think. I don't know how many they have with 2,000, whatever. They've, so, they, have of, uh, amount, yeah. they have they have a lot of a stupid amount. They have have a lot, more than Pete's, which is at about three hundred. But they, you know, they feel bigger, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know, Apple retail. That's just a, a drop the, the iPhone moment. <laughs> you know, that's, um. So she's been there, uh, at the at the magical moment, for some of the most important brands of our time. And that was more relevant than her understanding the particulars of the restaurant business because we're experts in that, but she's an expert in business and scaling a business with elegance without without messing up the the culture, without destroying. I wouldn't even say it in the negative. I would say she will take what is magical about Tender Greens and amplify and it. amplify it. Absolutely. So. You know, it's it's an it's just another opportunity to professionalize our organization, and and I think that's incredibly important for, for anybody out there at any stage. You need to know when, um, when you need to when 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 you need a professional.
1: Yeah. So over the you know the last 15 or so years that you've been running Tender Greens and, and growing it, uh, it seems you've been pretty particular with you know your locations and, and where you want to open up and invest in what does you know now with Danielle on board like what does the future look like um you know for tender greens
0: if i were to hit the easy button um which i've been trying to hit and it, it doesn't it's not connected yeah yeah um if if over the next 3 to 4 years we can replicate what we've done here in california on the east coast meaning from dc to boston um with the added learnings of our 11 and a half, 12 years, plus the professionalized team that we have and the incredible board uh, that we have, um, then I, th- I think it'll be a good three or four years. And then beyond that, uh, you know, we have other yeah, markets like Chicago or Texas. Uh, that would be the growth story. Uh, the, the brand story is, you know, best in class across categories, uh, certainly leading with the chef identity, uh, you know, and, and food as our superpower. Um, you know, there are other brands that do certain things better than us, and, and that's good, and we'll learn from them, and, and we'll, lead, we'll lead with food and, and, uh, and, and chef, chef talent, uh, which makes us very dynamic and then continue to show, continue to show up in the world in a, in a thoughtful way. Um, so lead, lead as a, you know, as a, as, as a, an important voice in food policy.
2: Eric, I know you had mentioned like earlier on that, you know, after tender greens, you started working on a few other projects. So, you know, just, uh, you know, kind of, see what you've been up to in the last couple of a couple to few years what are some of the other projects that you're working on that the listeners can check out and or or look forward to in the coming years
0: yeah one of the earliest was the Pete Ballesteri uh salami company uh that was incubated in San Diego at our second restaurant by Pietro Ballesteri uh, and I saw
2: that you guys will is it going to be in Italy LA that's right so Very uh i
0: cool. um, very proud of Pete and and his efforts over, over time. You know, he's at Air One Market. He's, uh, he's at Thrive. He, he's launching now at Italy. was with uh, Mario Patali Mm -hmm. the other day. And, um, you know, that, that is sort of an example of where we capture the, uh, something special that a chef is doing. And then we, we partner with them. So, you know, that's, Uh, it's a partnership between Tendergreens and and Pete. Um, And Pete still works with us, but he has this legacy label out there as well. Um, You know, we have our sustainable life project on the impact side uh, that was um, started, you know, seven or eight years ago with a mission to um, shift the cycles of dysfunction and emancipated foster youth through uh, a, Six-month paid internship uh, through Tender Greens, and the the vision is to scale um, as we scale. Uh, so the more restaurants we have, the more impact we can make, and then scale through story and inspiration. If we can get other entrepreneurs to, you know, take one, one, one youth. I was talking to Mayor Garcia the other night, and he was talking about homelessness, and uh, and I asked him, you know, how how many how many businesses do we have in Los Angeles? And it was something like 22,000 or something like that. This is the city of Los Angeles. This is the city, yeah. And and I said, well, imagine if every business took one. Whatever they do, right, it doesn't have to be food, but bring in an apprentice for six months and see how they do. Um, You almost have a a one-for-one, you know, uh, foster youth to, to business mentor, and you can change things very quickly. And that shifts... Cycles. It's not feeding the symptom, it's, it's, it's affecting the, the root cause. And we can't change families, but we can, we can change people's course. And, and we've proven that uh, through the Sustainable Life Project. We're working with the Global uh, Seed Trust, the Seed Vault, if you've heard of that, in Norway, um, to reintroduce uh, native and unique uh, varieties of plants back into Southern California. We're, we're going to do it um, in partnership with uh, uh, with Mike Anthony and Danny Meyer in New York, um, and we've selected a handful of farmers to participate that, in that. And and that's something that if if it's successful, every you know every uh, like-minded chef in every great city of the world with their own unique farm network is going to want to participate, which means we can scale an idea very quickly. Something that would have taken several generations to, to get off the ground 10 years ago can scale in five years globally, which means global crop diversity, which is a huge impact in you know, people's relationship with, uh, you know, with food and the diversity of crops and is a sort of a gentle pushback on monocropping and, and, and sort of the homogenization of, mm-hmm. of food. Um, so you know, those are some of the exciting things. And the, the one other thing is, uh, you know, we became the official chef to the LA Chargers and in, in the, in the Galaxy, awesome. and we're talking to some other other teams. So uh, professional sports is something that we're we're getting into. We uh, we've been we've been doing it sort of unofficially for many many years. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the Chargers and Galaxy relationship has shown us uh, that. Yeah, this this could be a real, uh, a real interesting journey for us.
2: I think it's something that the Lakers might also need. You know, to you know, I think it, it's I think that might be the last you know fuel, you know, that last boost they need to you know take it to the next level because they've been pretty disappointing. Yeah, They're you know, it's
0: it's funny uh, when we we started talking to the Chargers, they said they, they approached us and they, they, they you know they said we'd love for Tender Greens to become the official chef to the to the team, which means. Uh, Monday through Friday, yep. breakfast and lunch. We're, we're yeah. feeding the team and the coaches and everybody else. And and what they said is, look, we this is our most important asset, so we need to feed them well. So we're willing to do whatever it takes to bring really good food that they like and that they identify with. Which, you know, from you know from a, a brand perspective, it tells a story. Um, of, you know, food as, as, a, you know, as a supplement to, to elite performance um, and that you can do it without suffering, right? It's yeah. not your trainer's dietary plan of boiled skinless chicken and, and nori wraps and brown, you know, flavorless rice. You can eat, I mean, the way we cook for the, the team is the way we cook in the restaurants. There's no difference. Same ingredients, same approach mm-hmm. to food, um, same amount, essentially. I mean, some of these, you know, there's a little uh, bit more, but, um, <laughs> you know, but it's, uh, you know, it, it is a way of saying, you know, you can, you can eat really well um, with moments of indulgence uh, and not, not suffer. You know, it's not a diet. It's not uh, health food. It's just good good living.
1: Eric, I think, you know, your story is a prime example of how patience and resilience can ultimately, you know, work out when you, I mean, you're focused and work hard at something. Because, you know, after all these years, I mean, things have been steadily growing, but it seems like things are really falling into place now, you know, bringing Daniel on board and, you know, getting all these partnerships and expanding even more. Um, and I think that's something that every entrepreneur can really learn from is, is how important that patience is and not to give up just because, you know, you, you hit one obstacle or, you, you know, uh, things don't look good on the surface. Um, so, yeah, I think we just want to say thank you for being on the show. And yep. we wish you, you know, uh, continued success and all the best for your future. I mean, we're really excited to see where Tender Greens goes from here. Um, and hopefully we see it on the East Coast pretty soon.
0: Oh, my pleasure. You'll see, uh, see us in New York in early February and in Boston in, in uh, March.
1: Awesome. Looking forward to awesome. it. So. Thanks, Eric. Right, thanks, guys.